Um, I went through it several times, and I, was, I could see you in it, and I'd get reports back. And I know some of you, it may be the first time you ever stepped out and did anything like that. Um, and I'm just so proud of you. I kept getting reports. I've spent several, spent lunch yesterday with Terry Henshaw. Uh, they're friends of ours, so I've met with them and talked to them. We had dinner with them a couple of, a week ago, and all I could do is rave about you and, and what a great youth group we have here and how good you, great you guys are and the enthusiasm. Keep in mind, they, they've, this was their 37th city. And they've told me they've never been received like this. They've never had such helpful teams. They've never had... This is... We're talking about places where the Bible Belt is and huge, enormous churches. And what he kept telling me is he said, there's something about to happen here in New England. There's something about to happen here in New England. He said, I can feel it. And I can feel it too. And... Um, he said, this is really a mission field because he said, we go into other areas and we have, you know, they'll come and they'll talk to us, but there's a wall there. And he says, you know, we, we came here because they'd never been to New England before. And he said, you know, we were told that New England is hard and it's dead and it's, you know, it's very difficult to, people aren't open to you. He said, we found just the opposite. They're hurting people all around you, just waiting for somebody to open up. And I know some of you, this was the very first time you've ever done anything like this. Uh, you've reached out, and some of you are, you know, kind of pros at, you know, either talking to other people, and some of us, you know, not, there's some people whose personality are very outgoing, and it's just easy for them to talk to people, and for a lot of us, that's not the way. It, it may be hard for you to believe it. I'm a very shy person. I don't, you, I can stand in front of a crowd, and I'll talk to them, but one-on-one, -on -one, that's what my wife's so good at. And, um, but I found it stretched me, giving out tickets, talking to people. Um, but as Jeremy was sharing, what, what really hit me is um, for those of you that were part of it and you've shared some testimonies tonight and maybe some of you have them and you didn't share them, um, because it affected you, it changed you. Understand it wasn't the 99 that did that for you. It's the 99 was something God used to pull things out of us that we may not have done on our own. But what's brought you alive, what makes you excited, what's changed you, what's affecting people, not just you, but a lot of people in this congregation. We had over 100 people from Faith Christian Center involved in the 99. And what changed them wasn't the 99. What changed them is they took something that was in them and gave it to somebody. And although the 99 people are going to be moving away starting this weekend, the opportunities are still out there for us. So don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, it's over, that was the 99. No, the 99 simply stimulated it so we could taste something. And as Jeremy was sharing, this is one of the things I've been praying about. There are other things we're going to do. We're going to find other ways to mobilize and get out and because there's a, there's a hurting world around you. You go to school, there's got to be people hurting around you. I mean, you're, you go through school, from what I understand, is, is a completely different world than when I went to school. When I went to school, you got in trouble for talking in class, chewing gum. Uh, and that's child's play for the kinds of things that you face all the time. So I'm really down here. You know, I didn't come down here as much to, to talk about that. I just came down here to, again to, to uh, first of all, want to encourage you and thank you so much for your involvement in it. And uh, for those of you who weren't involved, there's going to be other opportunities that you'll have to be involved in some do things. I just wanted to spend some time with you and talk to you, listen to you, um, you know, share a little bit of my own life, some of yours, what you're going through. Um, how many of you have been raised in a Christian home? All right, so the rest of you, a lot, most of you. Okay, all right. I wasn't. I mean, I was raised in a home that went to church, but they weren't a Christian home. We went to Christian church, but 
we just thought because we went to church, everything was okay, and we went to church kind of, it was our obligation, we felt good, and this, you know, as long as the church wasn't over, didn't take more than 20 minutes or half an hour, it was okay, but if it got more than that, it was impinging on our time at the beach or wherever we were going to go. Um, so I just kind of went to church because we were supposed to do it, and, you know, I served in the church and um, kind of grew up and got away from it and um, went to college, and, and I, when I went to college, I, um, I wasn't saved. And I just decided, you know, um, what should I major in? What should I study? And I realized, you know, I want to study what other people thought about life and what life was all about. So I picked something which to you may sound, my goodness, why would somebody do that? But I decided to major in philosophy um, only because I thought maybe if I studied what other people thought life was about, that might help me find out what life was about. And uh, at the end of my college, as I finished studying them, I discovered they didn't know what they were talking about. And, um, and I didn't know why they didn't know what they were talking about. And there's really smart people. And uh, the family I was raised in um, was, most of them were smarter than I was. And um, my stepfather was very highly educated and very, in my family, the degree you had was a measure of how important you were. And if you went to a good college, if you had a good degree, that meant you were more valuable than somebody that just graduated from high school. So that's kind of what was ingrained in me. And um, all I knew is I just wanted to get away from home as quickly as possible. I wanted to get out on my own. You know, I love my family, but I just, they were messed up and I wanted to get away from them. And my, I saw college as a, as a ticket out of my home and to get out on my own finally. Um, and I did. And uh, uh, I went through college. I studied. I went to um, major in philosophy. And then uh, at that time, the Vietnam War was beginning to get to its height. Um, and uh, the only other thing I'd ever thought of doing was to be a minister, and I don't know why. I mean, I, I look back, and I have no idea why. Um, it wasn't nobody in my family ever had, but somewhere down inside of me, and I wasn't even saved, there was this idea, a desire to be a minister. But at that time, if you went to seminary, you got excused from going into the military, and I didn't want to use that as an excuse to not face whatever it is I would have had to face. So I went, I decided instead to do the only other thing I ever wanted to do was go to law school. And once I did that, I never thought about the ministry again, never thought about church. I began my career. Um, I met my wife. We got married, began to pursue the career, never thought about God, never thought about, you know, I was just enjoying life and prospering and, and doing well. Um, I don't know why I'm going off on this, but I'll just talk a little bit. And I just, um, but about 10 years after we were married, I began to realize how empty I was. I had success. I mean, I had making more money than we could spend. I was in a large law firm. Um, my wife uh, loved me. I loved her. We had two beautiful kids. Um, and everything was perfect. You know, we have a laced house in one of the nicer communities outside of Boston. But I was empty inside. And, I, and, and it really took some crisis to begin to help me to see that. I share that with you because as I grew up, um, I, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't. I mean, I went grew up growing to church, but I didn't grow up um, with Christian families. Um, but I see young people growing up. But let me approach another point for you. We were saved in our late 30s, and um, and soon after that, we had two other children, twin boys, who are now 32. Um, 
So I've grown up in a family that didn't, wasn't go to church, and now I've had four kids grow up in a family that did go to church. Um, so I've seen both sides of that, and I realize that you come to a point in your life, especially if you've grown up in church, where you begin to wonder, why do I believe what I believe? My parents believe in God, they believe in Jesus, they believe in going to church, you know, and they brought me to church, and um, that's what I know I'm supposed to believe. But there comes a point where you most likely begin to ask yourself, and especially if you go to, well, even if you go to Christian school, even if you go here, it's normal to begin to ask yourself, why do I, why do I believe this? And I think that's an important thing to ask yourself, because you need to come to the place where you know f for yourself why you believe what you believe. Because otherwise, you're going to try to stand on a foundation that somebody else built for you, that, not that God built for you. So I don't know where you are in that tonight. I'm open to, you know, just talk to you if you want. Uh, if you want me to talk, I'll go on. Not hard for me to talk. Um, but uh, I just, you know, that was kind of what was on my heart to open up to you. Um, and I share with you how I came to the conclusion that God was real and that Jesus was real. And it was, you know, maybe it was the background I had of philosophy, but I began to realize that, um, I mean, first of all, I was successful. I didn't, I didn't need God. Um, and, you know, when you're, when you're young, I think you can have an attitude that, you know, well, it's always going to be this way. I'm always in control. You know, well, that's one of the things the 99 does is help brings home that whether you're 15, 16, 18, 24, 64, or whatever it is, you're not guaranteed of your next day. And so um, uh, that life is literally just like that. Um, and so I began to realize, um, I don't know if there's a God or not. I don't know if God's real or not. I was trained to talk. I was real. And I began to say, all right, if there's a life after, I had to believe there was a life after death. I mean, I can't believe that, you know, we're here, we're made this way, you know, with all the DNA and all the things in us just to live for, you know, 30, 40, 60, 80 years, and then that's it. I just, it was hard, that was hard for me to imagine. So I decided, well, there must be some kind of afterlife, um, then what is it? Well, I was taught about heaven and, you know, looked at the Bible, it talked about heaven, um, but was that real or wasn't it real? And so I began to go through that struggle and realize that, wait a minute, if there's a God, and if he decides whether we go to heaven or not, and if he's a fair God, it's only fair if he tells us what's necessary to do that. And that's when I began to pick up a Bible and start reading it. Because I figure if God was going to be fair and was going to tell us what was required, he had to give it to us somehow. Um, and I found that it wasn't in philosophy. They didn't know what they were talking about. So I decided just kind of as an experiment to just pick up my Bible and start reading it. And um, as I did that, I began to get answers to things. And what I didn't realize at the time is while I was beginning to do that, God was beginning to work on me from the other side to draw me. See, the Bible says that nobody comes to him unless he draws them. But just because he draws them doesn't mean people are going to respond and are going to come. And I really came down to a point where it was six or eight months, I really got to the point where I was wrestling with this and 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 wrestling with this. And I was, you know, every time I 
pick up a book or something that talked about God. Every time somebody gave me a, we used records back then. Every time somebody gave me a record, it had some song in there about God. I go into a bookstore and I just, you know, I go try to find some book on history or something like that. There are books about God there. And see, God works on you. He know he'll meet you where you are and begin to work on you if we begin to recognize that that's God drawing us to him. And then it just finally came to a, a head one night, and I just, I was so miserable, and I didn't know why I was so miserable, that I just, I finally just cried out to God, I don't, I don't know if you're real, I don't know, you know, and all of a sudden I saw what the problem was. I was afraid to find out whether he was real or not. And the moment I saw that, I figured I'm more miserable not knowing than I would be to take the chance and find out that he wasn't real. And so literally, it was like one in the morning in my living room. I just said, Jesus, I don't know if you're real or not. That's how much faith I had. But if you are, I'm going to give you the shot to come into my life. And it was like opening a door that much. And when I did, I can't tell you, but it was like a heat went down through the top of me. And a, and a joy went through me that I'd never felt before. And I just started dancing around the room. I'm just 38 years old. You know, I have two kids. I'm still got a three-piece suit on from work, you know, and I'm dancing around the room. I'm just glad everybody's in bed because I look like an idiot, I'm sure. And I'm dancing around the room saying, he's real, he's real, he's real. And it took me a long time to calm down and get to bed. Then you wake up in the morning and I didn't know it was going to still be there. But I woke up and there was a joy there. And, you know, and I hadn't felt like that since I fell in love with my wife 20-some years earlier. I felt like I was a teenager that had just fallen in love. Everybody was beautiful to me. Everybody, I was happy. I didn't know what was going on. And, and I want to share that with you because what happened is in that experience with him, he became real to me. It was no longer something somebody had taught me about or talked to me about. But I had a real experience with him where, where, where he, I, I knew, and see, nobody can ever talk me out of it because I know from that experience, and that's not the last time I've ever had it, but I know from that that he's real. And, and he does this to you in different ways. What you may go through may be different than what I'll go through. And for those of you here on Sunday morning, this is, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having an encounter with God, an experience with God, where he makes himself real to you in a way that's not just a principle in a book or something you've just read in your Bible, where the God that's on that Bible, the Jesus in that Bible, comes off those pages and becomes real in your life, right where you are with what you're dealing with in life. So I didn't mean to go on about all that, but I just, that was kind of what was in my heart to share with you. So I'm, you know, willing to open it up, questions, comments, opinions. <laughs> I don't bite. Yes. What school did I go to? Which one? College, law school? I went to a college in upstate New York called Hobart College. It's a small college. It only had 2,000 guys in it. But it had a girl's school right next door. <laughs> Very small. And uh, then I went to law school in Boston at Boston University, which was about 50 times bigger in a city. It was a huge shock difference. Um, as I said, I was shy, very shy. I didn't date through high school. I mean, I was, I was shy. <laughs> but you can see what God will do with you if you'll just put yourself into his hands. Um, I don't know if any of you were here during the training session when Terry Henshaw spoke to some of the people that were here. 
But he said the same thing. He said he was so shy, and he told me this story on his own, that he was so shy in school that if he had to give an oral report, he would, he would forge a note from his mother saying that Terry has a strep throat or a sore throat and he can't talk. He would, he, that's how far he would go because he knew if he got up there to speak, he'd pass out. And now look what he's doing. Look what he's doing. You have no idea what God can do with you if you just begin to let him work in your life. And, you know, it's really easy to, because to, we're human. We look at other people and we say, you know, um, you know well, they're, they're good at speaking in public or, you know, they're on fire for God and, uh, or they're this or they're that. And, and, and then look at ourselves and say, well, I'm not there. That's not what I am. But God will use you right where you are. He uses us all differently. We all have different personalities, different interests. You notice we don't all look alike. That's for a reason, because there are some people that can look at you and feel comfortable with you. My wife is the kind of person that anybody feels comfortable coming up and talking to. I'm the kind of person they stay away from. <laughs> I don't know whether it's, I've checked my deodorant, and, I, and I'm told it works okay, and I've, <laughs> I know I wash my mouth out, and I, but, so I, I'm sure it's not that. But there's, there's, I've realized sometimes there's something about me that either is intimidating or it may be difficult to talk to. And so God will use you in your personality just the way you are. Don't shortchange what God wants to do in your life. You don't have to be like somebody else. Look, at the, if you read through the disciples, they were all different, very different. And yet God used them. He used, you know, Pete Paul, who was highly educated, very bright, very articulate. And then he used Peter, who was a rough fisherman who just got in fights all the time. And he used both of them. And uh, he wants to use you. And I do really believe with all my heart that what the 99 was about for this church and I believe for other churches was like a jump start. You know what it's like to, if you've ever gotten out and tried to start a car, your, your parents are on a cold morning. It's like, oh, no. The engine's there. The gas is there. But what's missing is enough charge in the battery to turn the engine over. So what you do is you call AAA or a friend comes over and they get those jumper cables and they stick it on the battery, one of them, and they stick one of them on the engine. And then you get in there and you go, Vroom, and starts right up again. Why? Because there's an outside charge has been brought in to give you that extra boost to turn the engine over. But once they do that, you know what they do? They disconnect the other car, the battery. Why? Because now the car can run on its own. And I believe that's where we are right now. For each one of you that's been involved, or even if you haven't been involved, um, the 99 was brought here to give us a jump start, but we're running. We're running, and God's going to begin to give us the things to do. Also, as Jeremy was sharing, I was just seeing some things. You know, it doesn't have to be an official um, D2L event. Um, it can be just learning to listen to people at school. There's a man that Terry Henshaw, that founder of uh, 99 was sharing with me about, who was retired, and all he did was sit on his front porch and they, you know, was finished, he was retired from his job, collecting Social Security, and as far as he was concerned, his life was over. There was no purpose to his life. And he went, the 99 came to his town, and he went and just served in it. And, uh, and then they left, and he started feeling really let down, like, well, that was over with, I did that, that was nice, and... Um, he went to the grocery store one day, and he opened to overhear two people talking about some situation in their life. 
and he just started to talk to me. Decided, see, the 99 gave him a little bit of boldness to step out. And he just started talking to them and said, you know, I hear what you're saying, you know, and they began to listen to me. So he began to just say, you know, God cares about that situation. He really does, and he'd like to help you. And then he said, would, would you like me to pray for you? And they said, well, sure, thinking he was going to go home and pray. He said, no, I'll pray for you right now. What happened is they opened up to him, and he ended up beginning to, leading one of them to the Lord. And he realized, you know, God's not through with me yet. So you can hear somebody in their 70s who thinks, well, God's, there's nothing for me to do anymore. God's not through with me. Or you can be at your end of life and think, well, what can God do with me? But that's the same question. God can use any of us as long as we're available to him. And so what happened is he began to realize, wait a minute, there's still a purpose for my life. So he would get up every morning and say, God, show me people's needs. Show me people around me. Help me to hear, to listen. And as he did that, he would go just out to this mall. He'd walk around wherever he was because he had the time to do that and just begin to listen around him. And he began to hear people talking, and he would just start talking with them. And see, you, you take that first step. See, that's what some of you did. You came to the 99. That was a step. Then you, somebody asked you maybe to do something. That was a second step. Next thing you know, things are coming out of you. You're working with people. You're ministering to people and things you didn't know you could do. But that's because you took a step. And then when you take that step, God will come in behind you. And that's what this gentleman did. And now he says every day he leaves at least 10 people to the Lord. And he's got meaning in his life again. And see, this is, this is what we were made to do. We were not made, you know, the, the going to school, finishing your school, getting a career like I had and all that. Those are fine things to do. But what we were made to do was allow God to work through us and touch other people. And often it's through our weaknesses. Often it's through things you may be struggling with. Um, because as you hear somebody going through the kind of thing you're going through, and you just begin to share with you know what, I'm going through that or I'm going through that, that gives them hope. And then you'll find out very often God's gotten me out of where I am by sending somebody across my path in a worse situation. And I'm saying, God, that's not what I was looking for. I was looking for somebody to tell me what to do, to help me. But often God will use somebody with a greater need to help you get out of where you are. So I'm rambling again. So what happens when you get older, you start rambling. So did I see a hand over here somewhere? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll start asking you questions. <laughs> yes, Becky. <laughs> she was a she was she was I love to tell the story. She was a she was a blind date. I don't mean she couldn't see, and that's why she fell in love with me. No. <laughs> yeah. I was in college. I, this is how she, I was a junior in college. I had been on one date in my life, and it was a disaster. <laughs> and I, uh, it was, it was bad. Um, I couldn't, I, you know, anyway, it was bad. Um, and I had a, I was in a fraternity, and I, one of my friends in the fraternity was engaged to um, a girl in a nur in nursing school in Cincinnati. And he didn't have a car, and I had a car, so one weekend he said, you know, look, if you'll drive me out there, I'll, f I'll fix you up with her roommate. And I said, 
I mean, my social schedule was so bad, I had nothing to do. It's like, sure, why not? And it was about an eight-hour drive. That's without, you know, stopping for gas. So we drove out there, and, uh, and that's how I met her. Um, uh, but I'll be, if you promise to not tell anybody, all right, I didn't really fall for her right away. You know, she was nice. She was nice and she was cute, you know, and that was she. But, but, but she did fall for me right away. So. And, um, uh, and I just later on, I came back and it was, you know, it was nice. And, uh, um, but she was going to, this was in the spring, she was going to go to Fort Lauderdale, and none of us were safe. She was going to go to Fort Lauderdale that spring break with a bunch of her friends. And um, a close friend of mine and I were going to drive to Florida because my grandparents lived in Florida, and we were going to go right through Daytona. And so she had given me her phone number just in case I ever was... Um, um, oh, she, excuse me, yeah. She, so I called her before I left. She hadn't left yet. And I said, look, I'm going through Daytona if, you know... If you feel like I see me, I'd like to stop and see you. She said, all right, okay. So um, so she told me where we were, and, and so we uh, stopped, and and that's when I fell for her, you know. So And then what happened is I started making that eight-hour trip every other weekend. So, aw. <laughs> so I would go down, and I would, I would leave at 5 in the morning on Friday, um, and I would get there at 3 in the afternoon, pick her up from class, and then drive an hour north to where her parents lived. And then Friday, Sunday evening, she had a curfew at midnight. I would take her back, get in my car at midnight, and drive all night for my 8 o'clock philosophy class. Now, I wasn't worth too much on that class, uh, <laughs> but I didn't care. <laughs> so I did that for... Um, for more over a year. Now, summers it wasn't like that, but so, yeah. And then when I graduated from college, I decided, look, because my law school was another eight hours east, that um, I either better break up or marry her. So I obviously made the right choice. So, <laughs> so that's how we met. So, so yeah, so it was worth it. So, <laughs> and that was 40, I met her 47 and a half years ago. That sounds like I'm old. <laughs> so, so again, I was shy. So, anybody think else you want to know? <laughs> I'd rather talk theology, but this is not... <laughs> No, I'm glad we're doing that. Yes, Brian. Did you ever play sports? <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed he didn't say, did you ever play it well? <laughs> yeah, I played... <laughs> oh, yeah. I was the oldest of five boys. Um, and we were kind of a blended family because my parents divorced when I was nine years old. And my mother remarried... Uh, a gentleman that had three boys, and then together they had another one. Um, so I went from being an only child to the oldest at first at that time of four overnight. So I had guys, you know, they were younger than I was. So we would play ball together. But I, I did, um, I did play on a little league team once. <laughs> Let's put it this way: I love sports. I love you know sports, but my love for sports is a lot greater than my ability. <laughs> also, when I was a teenager, I was pudgy. Uh, I was pudgy and I didn't run fast, so they made me catch her. 
and I. <laughs> oh, I've got some bad memories coming back. <laughs> you sure you don't want to talk for a loss at the ball? I was a catcher, and um, <laughs> and I remember a play. Uh, was one of the last things I remember as a catcher. Because, um, again, I couldn't run very fast. Um, so a catcher doesn't have to go far. <laughs> and there was a play where the ball was hit to the outfield, and the guy was rounding through a base coming home. And they threw the ball to me, and, and, but I was, lar I, was, I was pretty tall, so I was bigger than most of the other kids. I was just not in good shape. And I just know I was determined to not let him score. So I placed myself in front of that. Never re I figured he'd stop. I don't know what I was thinking. And he bawled right into me and knocked me over. <laughs> in fact, he knocked the wind out of me. And, um, and I dropped the ball. <laughs> so what happened is when I went into, into school... The, the high school I went to was a private school, and we had to all participate in sports. So instead of, um, I love basketball, but God didn't gift me to play basketball. <laughs> so what I did, I became the manager. And manager in basketball, for those of you who don't know, isn't the guy that tells him what to do. He's got to pick up the dirty towels. But I just wanted to be involved. And uh, so that was, you know, but I love sports. I played, you know, catch with my kids. I played catch, you know. Um, but organized sports I wasn't that good in. I was one of the last guys they'd pick on a team because <laughs> they had to. <laughs> so, but I learned a lot of life lessons that way. <laughs> so, but I play golf. I like golf, so things like that. So I'm not that good at it, but I like it. Yeah, I don't mind answering questions about myself before I get to know us, so. I don't bite. Yes, Jeff. Were you a good student in school? Oh, you're really pushing this now. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, in the lower grades, I wasn't. I think part of it was my my um, my uh, first grade was when my parents went through the divorce, and I was in three, maybe four different schools in first grade. Um, so I was. Uh, I didn't have much confidence. Um, but somewhere, it was in 10th grade, um, it began to click. Um, and of all things, it was history, which I didn't like. But I somehow got a good grade on a history exam, and now I started liking it. And when I started liking it, I started studying it. Um, and I went from being um, a pretty straight C-minus student to a straight-A student within about a year simply because my attitude changed, because my confidence changed. And then um, my parents decided, my mother and my stepfather decided to put me into a, a different school, and it was um, one of the tougher private schools in the country. So I was in shock. I went from being the top of my class in high school to the, you know, the bottom of my class in this school. But it was one of the best things that happened to me academically because it was very challenging. Um, so that when I went to college, uh, the first year of college was not hard. But yeah, I went from, I didn't like, I wasn't a good student. Um, in fact, in seventh grade, they, I was failing. Um, so they, they took me for some tests and found out that my um, reading, I was in seventh grade, my leading, reading level was fourth grade and my vocabulary was 11th grade. Um, so I went to a tutor 
And it's interesting how God works in your life because what the tutor taught me how to do is to break words apart, to take the main part of the word and the prefix and the suffix. And that's a lot of what I use in teaching. I'll take words and break them apart, and as I break it apart, I get a, a greater depth of meaning. So what was a problem that I had in growing up um, that this tutor was to help me overcome, I don't remember much of what he said, but he gave me a way of approaching words when I didn't understand them, which I use today. I use today in my teaching. So it's amazing how God works in your life. Oh, it's almost like he knows what he's doing, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yes, Lily. Yeah. Or like the popular people. Were you in any kind of different group? I was in the, uh, a group you didn't mention yet. That's <laughs> 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 interesting. I don't know what... I changed school so many times, I'm not sure I ever got into a group. I went from being in... Um, I don't think I ever really fit into any of those groups. Um, I wasn't like a loner. Um, but it was interesting. I found that... This, I was very shy, but girls talked to me more easily than I, I could relate to girls more easily than boys. Um, and I think it was probably because of the relationship I had with my father. Um, and and it was more. You know, and I think it was because I was I could listen. I would listen to them. I'm not sure I understood them, but I listened to them. <laughs> and um, so I didn't really fit in with one of those groups. I don't. I certainly wasn't the athlete, and I wasn't the you know wasn't the geek. Um, and I wasn't one of the, you know, the guys that wore the leather. They, back in those days, they were, the, you know, Fonzie. Remember Fonzie from the you guys know Fonzie is? That was my generation. They had the the hair and the, all that stuff. And I wasn't one of those either. I'm not. I really didn't fit into any particular group. Um, that was a long time ago too. I was trying to remember. So, um, but I I never felt as if I was part of a, a, an in group or anything like that. I always felt like I was kind of different. Um, yes, JJ. Uh, in your time as a lawyer, uh, do you, you said you, you felt very successful too, but in any of the cases and what they did, did you learn anything that you could apply to your own, at the time or now even that you could apply to your life? Well, yeah, I mean, in some practical ways and also in some other ways. Um, the training. I use today, even though I don't practice law, because it taught me how to think a certain way. So that I tend to approach anything kind of a rational way. I break it down. It also taught me a discipline so that I don't react. Uh, if there's a crisis going on, I'm not going to react right away. I'm going to wait and realize and think it through, because uh, a lawyer has to stay calm, even though on the inside they may be, you know, I had amazing things happen in court that I didn't know, but I had to stay calm on the outside. But one of the most amazing things that happened to me, um, because I was I, I saved when I was 37, so I was a lawyer when I was saved, um, and about four years later, I began to feel a call to the ministry. Um, so I resigned the practice in Boston and um, moved my family out to Oklahoma and went to Bible school out there. Um, and we're out there four years, and then I came back, and I was helped somebody start a church, and then that didn't work out, and I went back and practiced law for another nine years. At that point, actually even when I was, um, uh, after I was saved, 
I have, and I, we don't have time tonight to get into it, but I have at, at least three situations where I was in a trial in court and had no clue what the answer was. I'll tell you one of them. Um, I was in a hearing um, where I was representing a company that was a, a larger company was basically trying to steal the company away and was going to cost people their jobs. Um, and the law firm I was in was a very small law firm, and they put me in charge of this case, and I'd never hand this handled this kind of case before. Um, and um, I would find myself sitting in situations where I'm sitting in a judge's office with other lawyers that knew all about this area that I knew, I knew nothing about, and they're asking me questions that I don't have answers for. So all I knew to do is write the question down and say, well, I'll have to get back to you on that. I mean, I'm shaking inside because I don't know what to do. And these people's jobs and lives, jobs are at stake. And I just knew that, that if God allowed me to be put in that situation, he was going to help me with it. And I go back to the office and I just pray, God, I don't know what to do in this situation. And there would be a wisdom come. And it's not like I'd hear a voice. I would just have a sense of what to do. And if I'd stepped out on that, it worked. And the best example of that happened because it all came together in one hearing. And if I lost this hearing, the, ju court, the judge was going to shut this company down. These people were going to lose their jobs. And again, this was a major international company that was trying to put them out of business. But I didn't know that. So I go into court. I literally stayed up all night preparing for this hearing. And it was an uphill issue anyway. I go into court, and I um, stand up to start to make my presentation, and the judge says, Mr. Pfeffer, I've thought about this, and he said, I've already decided, I don't want to hear you. I've already decided that how this case is going to go. I'm deciding for the other side, you know, thank you very much. And I mean, I, I stayed up all night. There's a lesson in this, because I worked hard in my own strength to do this. And all of a sudden, the judge threw the whole thing out. And I almost wanted to say, you can't do that, Your Honor, but then he's the judge. You can't tell him that, you know. And I said, would you please give me, you know, can I have a postponement to tomorrow? He says, no. He said, I'll give you 10 minutes. I said, 10 minutes? You know, I was up all night preparing this. So I go out in the hallway and other lawyers are around trying to give me advice and talk. And I can't even, my head's swimming. I just know I can't even hear what they're saying to me. And I walked down to the other end of a bench. I can still see it. It's an old wooden bench. And I sat down there with my legal pad. And I just said, God, you put me in this situation. I don't know what to do here. Now the judge is throwing this case out. I don't have no idea what to do. And as clearly as I heard your voice, DJ, I just sensed in me, ask this question. And I wrote the question down, and I know who to ask it. I didn't know what it meant. Just a question. And I went back in, and the judge said, do you have anything to do? I said, yes, I would like to call this witness. So he came up, and, you know, you fast to ask him some preliminary things, you know. And then I said, and I asked him this question. The moment I did, there was a whole bunch of lawyers from New York on the other side. This is out in Oklahoma. They all jumped up saying, you can't ask that question, objection. And the judge said, no, I'd like to hear the answer to that. Well, what came out of it was a whole scheme illegally to steal this company away that I had no idea of. But God knew it, and he brought that out. But what that did was give me confidence that in any situation I'm in, if I'm just, see, I want, the tendency was to panic and think, I, to take it, see, I, I tried in my own strength to do it the night before and stayed up all night, and you should work and you should do your preparation. But I had gone over it and over it and over it and over it and over it because I was trusting in my mind to do this. And it was a lesson that God had for me because he basically threw that all out. And, and 
and now my head's swimming, what am I gonna do? And we all get in those situations. But what I had learned is if I just get quiet and say, God, I know you're here with me. I know you, you're, not, you're with me and I know you have an answer. And that's the secret is learning to just get still enough and have confidence because I've got other stories I could tell you where God gave me an answer of what to do. And, 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 and it just blew me away to see, because God knows everything. He knows every situation you're going to deal with. He knows the answer to every question you have. He knows all the challenges that are facing you. He knows, and he knows what to do, but we try to handle it ourselves. And we get scared, we get nervous, we get pressured, or we try to get other people to help us with us. And sometimes that is the answer to go talk to somebody. Um, I, we don't have time tonight, but there's another one where I made a terrible mistake in a case, a large case, that was going to cost my client $100,000. I just missed a deadline, and I was too busy. And I went, <clears throat> I went to my senior partner, and I said, look, I missed the deadline. I'm sorry. You know, if you wanted me to resign, I'll do that. He said, no, no, that's okay. And I just went out. I'm in my head swimming again. And I went out in the street that day, and I said, God, I don't know what happened here. Um, God later showed me what happened. He was trying to warn me I was taking on too much, and I should have asked for help, and I tried to handle it myself. So I got so busy, I missed a deadline. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I repent. I don't know what to do here. And I just prayed for a while, walking around. And again, it was the same kind of thing. It wasn't a voice I heard. It was just somewhere, once I got a piece inside of me, it was what I had a sense of doing is to go back to the judge and ask the judge to reconsider his decision. Because I'd gone to the judge and said, I know the deadline's passed, but, you know, please excuse it. And the law didn't give him that ability to do it. It says if you miss that deadline, that piece of property is gone. There's no other way. And the judge said, I'm sorry, I don't have any choice. So the judge had already told me I couldn't do it. That's when I started to go and pray. And the Lord said, ask the judge to reconsider his decision. So I came in, and one of the lawyers that worked with me used to work for that judge. And I told him what I was going to do. He said, He'll never, he, never, he has never done that before. But it's all I had to go on. So I began to write the papers because I knew what to do at that point. I drew up a paper. I filed it with the court um, on a Friday afternoon, and the judge's secretary called me and said he wants to hear this on Monday. Well, that was encouraging because he didn't just throw it out. So Monday I get on the phone with him, and the judge hears my case, and there's a huge law firm on the other side saying, you know, you already decided this judge. There's no reason to listen to this anymore. <clears throat> and the judge said after hearing all this, he said, Mr. Pfeffer, I want to ask you a question. Did you make a mistake? Now, lawyers don't like, none of us like to admit we make mistakes, but especially lawyers, because you can be liable. And so I'm kind of at this point, am I going to try to cover it up or, you know, kind of make it look, well, you know, I don't know quite what happened, or just face it head on? And I said, yes, Your Honor, I made a mistake. He said, fine. And he began to argue my case with the other lawyer, because the judge found a provision that created an exception. The judge did it for me. But that's because see, God had a way out of that situation that not only did I not believe was there, people that knew more than I do told me weren't there, and yet God found a way. And I, we don't have time that I could tell you three or four other cases like that. So you ask me life lessons. The biggest one is to learn that, I can, that God is with me all the time, that no matter what situation I get into, and that was the case where I got myself into it, that God will get me out, 
as long as I'm honest with him and turn to him, and then I've got to expect him to answer me. Because a lot of times we'll say prayers, but we really are not. Because if you expect somebody to answer them, you're going to listen for it. And that's what I did when I got alone at the end of that bench. And I shut all the other advice I was going to get out. That's what I did when I didn't listen to the other lawyer in my office, and I just went out and said, God, somewhere I know you've got an answer with this. I don't know what it is. I don't know how you're going to do it. And often God's answer comes in a way that you would never dream it's going to come. So I've learned to just not try to figure out how he's going to do it. Because every time I figure it out, I just eliminated one way he's going to use. But I would say, yes, out of my practice of law, in terms of spiritually, those are the most important lessons. I've saw how faithfully, at least four times, if not more, that God came through for me in situations that were absolutely impossible. But there's nothing impossible with God. So, All right. Well, I appreciate your openness and questions, and I'd love to do this. We'll come down and do this again if you'd like. So um, praise God. Let me, let me pray for you. 